So the fear knots of Christmas from Luke chapter 1 verses 26 to 38. If you haven't noticed already, we are well and truly into the, the Christmas season. I, um, I don't know how, how things are up here, but uh, certainly where I was in, uh, in the northern part of Myanmar, the, uh, the, month, the month of, uh, of December is especially for, for the whole country of Myanmar, apparently it's pretty open. So you can go and preach the gospel, you can do outdoor stuff and, and people are very open. You can go knocking on doors. The rest of the year it's, it's pretty difficult, but during Christmas there's a special openness, uh, especially in a, in a Buddhist country. And uh, the churches really do take advantage of this. They take presents, they sing along. Um, while we are in Calais, uh, they load up the back of a truck, uh, back of a truck, no OH&S by the way, um, it's a, and they pack the back of a truck uh, as much as many people as possible from a church or different churches and blaring speakers throughout up and down the main street singing carols, all right? So that'll work really well in Denham Court, I can see that. <coughs> so I don't know who's with me on that one. <laughs> so I, uh, it's, a different, it's a different world. I say, oh, my goodness. Uh, it's amazing, and one of the one of the towns that actually last Sunday I was in a in a town called Tambu, and believe it or not, it's a town of about five thousand, mainly mainly Christians. There are in a town of five thousand, there are sixteen churches, and uh, all of them have about you know get anything between fifty to a hundred people on a, on a Sunday. Amazing, and uh, six of them I think Baptist churches and uh, some Catholic and then Pentecostal churches. I said, my goodness, this is like heaven. There's Christians everywhere. And, but not only that, but it's the fact that they, they're able to send Christians all over the country from this town. So it's not just this concentration camp of Christians. They're actually, it's a very much a sending place um, to colleges and even uh, other parts of the world. So it is... It is something, and Lian Chi, who actually runs the orphanage, she actually comes from that, from that town as well, from our Christian heritage. And so it's really encouraging that uh, they have this outward focus. And I'm bringing this up because we live in a, in a, in a country where the Christian faith seems to be folding in on itself in, in some ways. And it wasn't always like this. But we need to, to deal with things and we need to, this is the time in which we live. We have to move around as wisely as we can. And uh, I think it's important that we continue to, while the Lord hasn't come back yet, we need to continue to share the message of Christmas, even if people don't want to hear. So this morning being the second last Sunday before Christmas, we're going to think about an important aspect of the nativity story and it has to do with the subject of fear. And one of the repeated statements that comes out of the Christmas story is to not be afraid or as it says in other translations, fear not. And there are at least four fear nots in the Christmas story. And they are connected to angelic beings actually physically appearing 
or in the dreams to make their announcement and and the the name angel is actually a messenger, a messenger from God, bringing a message from God. Of course, having angels suddenly appear would be a frightening thing in itself, but uh, it's more what they said, not which we want to focus on, not just the mere fact that they, they made an appearance, because each appearance is, is related to a word, a specific significant word in the context of the person's life and where they were at and how God was going to use them. So, what are they? Well, first of all, we're going to look at Zechariah. Zechariah and unanswered, unanswered prayer. And this is what it says in Luke chapter 1, verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you are to give him the name John. As we know, there is a gap of 400 years between the last prophet Malachi and the appearance of the angels in Matthew. And he must have been Difficult for God's people to live for 400 years of silence from heaven. One can imagine going to the temple and what it would have been like and religious life in general would be too readily become like a, nothing more than a ritual, a tradition. And as it happened throughout their history, the Jews were once again occupied by a foreign power. And no, there were no prophets to stir the hearts of the people, but God was doing something about that. And many must have been thinking that God is surely not listening to his people's prayers and pleas. But God, of course, never works in a vacuum as he always chooses to do his work through people and humble people at that. So here we have a couple who have been praying for what must have seemed like an eternity for God to grant them a child. And of course we know through scriptures that this theme of the the barren womb is repeated many times in the Bible. And that God delays, delays, delays and then suddenly he grants the wish. And Zechariah was a religious man, devoted to the temple. He was a Levite priest. He would offer his sacrifices for the people. He would also offer sacrifices for God to answer his and his wife Elizabeth's prayer for a child. But deep down inside, there must have been this this gnawing feeling that what does it all mean? Was it all for nothing? But they kept at it. With that little faith, what they had left, they kept praying. And then, and then God answered. And it is then that God shows up at the temple. And it is in the context of worship that God's angel appears to this priest and pronounces the words that 
were just too optimistic, too hopeful, too unrealistic, too unbelievable to be true because he had been just, got caught in a rut, you see, of the expected, of the predictable. God was going to break through. And these are the words, we'll repeat them. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You're going to give him a name, John. What is your prayer life like? Do you sometimes fear that your prayers are caught in a rut, just a futile exercise? We often stumble in our prayer life and it's mainly because faith and attached to faith, hope, generally doesn't come very naturally to us. The encouragement to all of us, however, is that God only needs the faith the size of a mustard seed to do his work. To get things moving, to break through, to do that which he had already been planning to do. And our prayers are the the vehicle, are the, the means by which he will accomplish his will. But if you haven't been praying, how do you know that God's answering your prayer? Right? So God answers in the context of prayer because people devoted are praying and saying, Lord, this is what we have requested. And God answers. God still answers prayer. And whether it be a day, a month, a year, or even beyond our lifetimes, 400 years, you don't want to listen to that, do you? You want prayers answered here now, Lord. Yesterday would have been nice. But as they say, no pun intended, God has all the time in the world to accomplish his will. But do not fear, for God will answer. God will answer in his time, but he will answer. Secondly, Mary and the humanly impossible. From Luke Chapter 1, verse 30, verse 35, and then verse 37. So we're jumping from verse to verse here. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. For nothing is impossible with God. We've just spoken about prayer and God using the channel of prayer to answer. And yet, this young girl would not have been praying for any of this. And yet, God still chooses her to do the most amazing, incredible thing in the world. There are countless situations in our world that appear humanly impossible. 
And if they were to, to happen, we will know that somehow they were the result of a miraculous act. But there is always the fear of believing in something that we cannot readily understand, figure out. This fear that we're going to be laughed at and mocked for relying on faith rather than relying on reason, in science, in research, for, that we're going to be laughed at and mocked for standing out on a limb, for going out on, and, and doing something and even declaring something that the whole of society seems to reject. And yet this is the realm where God most often chooses to operate. Just, just picture this innocent young girl engaged to be married. So far, life was going according to normal, predictable plans. More than likely, mum and dad had arranged the marriage with Joseph. She had agreed and now she was going to live happily ever after just like all the other girls in the village. Everyone, everyone else seemed to be happy. Why couldn't she go through the same normal, predictable pattern like everybody else? Life is predictable in village life. Life is normal. Normal is good. But just to break the normality of it all, there is some unexpected good news in the extended family. After hearing that cousin Elizabeth is expecting after waiting and waiting for so many years, it happened. And God had answered many prayers of many Israelite women, of course, who had been unable to conceive. But never in human history had a virgin been able to conceive without even trying or even asking. This wasn't even a case of someone praying in a particular way so that God would answer. It's outside of all of that. The Sovereign Lord simply acted according to His sovereign will, ready or not, to enter humanity through this young girl called Mary. To many so-called Christians, and I have to say so-called because the virgin birth for me is one of the core beliefs that you can't just take it or leave it. It is actually part of, an essential part of our faith. However, there have been many, since the 1900s, there have been many liberal theologians, pastors, uh, even uh, Martin Luther King didn't believe in the virgin birth, believe it or not. He didn't believe it. Um, because people are still trying to figure God out in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a test tube, in a, in a lab. They're, they're trying to say, well, that just is beyond reason. So strip away all the miraculous stuff in the Bible and, and I'll believe that. Believe in what? What are you left with? You just live with history. Nothing. 
And so beginning in the 1900s, there was this debate of whether the virgin birth was actually an essential part of the Christian faith. Do we, do we need the virgin birth in order to, to, to call ourselves a Christian? Is it possible for an intellectually astute and mature adult today to believe or, or is it merely something from Christianity's so-called superstitious past? A few years ago there was a poll of over 7,000 Protestant evangelical clergy regarding their belief in a virgin birth. And these were the results. These are the, the following ministers, pastors, did not believe in the virgin birth. The American Lutherans, 19% of them did not believe in the virgin birth. American Baptists, 34%. Episcopalians, 44%. Presbyterians, 49%. And Methodists, 60%. John Wesley would be turning in his grave, wouldn't he? But for God to be God, he has to be sovereign. He doesn't have to explain himself to us in a way that we can reason him out. He has to be the God of the humanly impossible. Otherwise he would be no more than an idol or a God manufactured in our image. We were made in his image. He is not made in ours. What type of God do you worship? Do you fear serving a God who is in control and out of your remote control? You know, you pick up your remote control. Hey, God, do your stuff. I'm going to go for a break now. I just need to sleep, okay? So just go to sleep, God, and when I wake up, we can resume discipleship and 101. Is that how it works? No, of course not. God's going to do what he's going to do. And I think the best attitude that you and I should have best recommendation is what Mary Mary's response submit and say I am the Lord's servant may it be to me as you have said Lord do what you got to do isn't it that is a powerful message for the Christmas story just do your stuff Lord whatever happens let the chips fall where they may I'm here and that's, I think, one of the, well, it has to be one of the most powerful reasons why God chose this girl. Well, she was, she was submissive to God and God knew her heart even before she could understand it all. Thirdly, Joseph and the call to obedience. So the fear not here is of Joseph and the call to obedience. Now, um, comes from Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, and then we jump to verse 24. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her 
is from the Holy Spirit. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. So you can only imagine the thousand and one feelings that uh, Joseph would have been going through in a conservative society like that where tongues will be wagging, everybody knew everything about everyone. He still loved Mary, but his heart was aching, he was hurting. He was hurt because he felt that Mary had obviously cheated from all from all indications she had cheated on him. Not only that, but soon the bump will start to show and very soon the whole town would know about it. He was a man and he had to do something. His pride was obviously dented and he did not want to become the laughing stock for his family and in front of his friends. Therefore, in order not to bring shame, he decided to pull out of engagement and move somewhere else and start again where no one would know him, to another village, another town, and just hide for a while. That was his plan. He had it all worked out. This is what I'm going to do. We all make plans like this, don't we? That when, when things get pretty hard, when the temperature starts to rise and get into a bit of trouble, we can't work it out. I say, well, I can't understand it. I'm just going to leave, going to quit, move on. But there is someone else who's a higher authority behind it all. And that is God. And I think many times when we try and do things without taking God's plan, God's sovereignty into consideration, we will run into trouble, taking matters into our own hands. There's a, there's a well-known uh, economist from the old days called John Kenneth Galbraith and he spoke of, the, of uh, in his biography, he spoke about the devotion of his family's housekeeper. Her name was Emily Wilson. And uh, he tells a story about one particular day when it had been a very tiring, uh, wearing old day and, and, and I asked, he says, I asked Emily to hold all telephone calls while I had a nap. And shortly after, the phone rang after I had gone to sleep. And Lyndon Johnson, who was the president in the 60s after JFK was killed, uh, Lyndon Johnson was calling from the White House and he said, uh, get me Kelm Galbraith, this is Lyndon Johnson. And she answered, this is, uh, well he is sleeping Mr President, he said not to disturb. Well wake him up, I want to talk to him. No Mr President, I work for him, not you. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, I wonder if you'd be doing the same, right? And uh, it says that when he woke up, when I called the president back, he could scarcely control his pleasure. He said, 
tell that woman I want her here in the White House right now. (laughs) Let me ask you, who do you work for? Who is your boss? Ultimately, when it comes to priorities and everybody's trying to, you know, clamour for importance and so-and-so, so-and-so, who ultimately is your boss? It's God. And despite how afraid you might be to make a stand for God, are you willing to take that step of obedience? Do not be afraid, do not be afraid Afraid of what? Of people talking, of tongues wagging, of, of your pride getting destroyed. Forever be known as, the, as a coward who didn't stand up. Do not be afraid of any of that, Joseph. Just do as I would tell you, mate. Take Mary home as your wife. And if you obey... There is no fear that you will be making a mistake. If you do not obey, then all those fears will be kicking in because you've let God down. Jonah said no to God at the beginning and he forever had this gnawing feeling, oops, I made a mistake. He knew it. Obedience is is costly but it's You can do much worse. The order has been given. You simply do what he has told you to do and you do it. Fourthly, the fear of the shepherds, the shepherds and the good news, the shepherds and the good news. Now this story comes from uh, Luke chapter 2 verses 10 to 11. Luke 2, 10 to 11. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Saviour has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. In my recent trip, one of the things that I discovered in Myanmar, particularly in the, um, in the capital, is that People are living in this constant fear. They can't explain it, but all the houses have got bars, despite the fact that it is actually one of the safest countries in the world because of big military presence. There's not a lot of robberies and, and uh, you know, people bags getting snatched and drive-by shootings, any of that. If you want that stuff, go to South America. I'll, I'll take you straight where it's happening. Go to Mexico. Um, go to the US, any city in the US, you, you, you'd see that. But I didn't see any of that. And yet people still live with this tremendous fear. They lock themselves up. So why the fear? I didn't feel physically fearful. I think it's actually a spiritual fear. It's a spiritual fear. Fear of death, the fear of upsetting the the spiritual realm. 
they need appeasing. You need to offer a sacrifice here or an offering there and pray here, pray there. People constantly, this imbalance in their life, even though they're seeking balance, it's, it's, it's not a way to live, is it? So why the fear? Because only those that are dying need a saviour. But it is not the act of dying itself, but the fear of death and the unknown. That is which terrifies humanity. Of course, many terrorists are quite willing to die for their cause, but there is nothing that gives them more pleasure than to see others terrified of death. So they record their acts and they see, it gives them pleasure to, to see others through the media and others just terrified. Terrified of explosions and this and that. The news media, media keeps feeding us constant diet of fear. So negative. You look at any front page of any news source we obviously, there's, there's a hunger to be terrified. It sells. Terrified of climate. Terrified of bushfires. Terrified of smoke. Terrified of recession. Terrified of our investments and our super and our retirement plans going up in smoke. Terrified of our kids dying at the hands of a drunk driver. From fear to fear. Seems to be a big seller. And people popping pills to be able to live with all this anxiety that builds up in their lives. Is that really a way to live? Now, our search for safety and reducing risk, is, is, that's common, I think, in all humanity. So that is why it's so hard to fathom some of the sacrifices of, of people who, who choose to leave a, a relatively safe environment like Australia and move to third world conditions to spread the gospel, to teach, to serve in, in medical facilities that are so substandard and to train doctors and others. I've met some of these people. He's saying, why? And I asked him, I said, why? What made you leave? You could have been in Australia earning six, seven figures, successful in your field of endeavour. He says, well, God told us. God told us we had to go and we went. It's, it's like it wasn't negotiable. They just left, left it all. Left it all and went. And you talk to some of the locals and, uh, and they're so grateful. They say, I cannot understand why you, you pay so much money for airfares and to your church lets you come to spend this time with us in this very humble, there is nothing here except a love for God and yet you, you come. You're so blessed. Grateful. What does it take to share the good news? What 
does it take to share the good news? I was talking to um, one pastor that Ted introduced me to. He'd spent uh, time in jail because in the old days uh, they were trying to smuggle Bibles across to China. And um, while he was in prison, uh, while he was in prison, he actually led a person to the Lord in prison. And, uh, and then they released him. The last thing you want in prison is this guy converting everybody in there. So they, they, so they let him go. Um, you need to understand something, right? That if, if God wants to convert somebody, he will move heaven and earth. doesn't matter. He will even send you back bankrupt so you need to spend time in prison if, if he's going to use your witness to save somebody who's in jail, okay? That's the type of God we're talking about here. There's nothing out of his... his uh, there's no levers that he can't use. And even as you, 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 you're you probably wondering in, in desperation, I say, why Lord, why Lord, why Lord? And you're saying, well, okay, just show me the opportunities here in this place, in these circumstances. And that's what a lot of brothers and sisters around the world are doing. Rather than ask why, they start asking how. And they have nothing. And they're doing it because they're willing to take the good news in the most sometimes impossible circumstances because they're trusting in God. Now these, uh, these shepherds, obviously, they experience fear. They were just going about their normal everyday life. But suddenly their lives will be transformed because of the good news. It will affect them. They needed to confirm it. And once they left, they told everybody about it. It's good news. Let me finish with a story of, the, uh, of a Ugandan bishop, Festo, Festo Kivangeris. He tells a story of uh, going a few years now, 1973. Uh, there was an execution by a firing squad of three men from his own diocese in Uganda. And this is what he says. He says, February 10 began as a sad day for us in Kabali. People were commanded to come to the stadium and to witness the execution. A silent crowd of about 3,000 was there to watch. And I had permission to go and, and talk to the men before they were to be executed. And they brought the men in a truck and unloaded them in chains and the firing squad stood at attention. And as we talked into, as we walked into the centre of the stadium, I didn't know what to say. How do you give the gospel to doomed men who are probably seething with rage inside? But as we approached them, oh, what a sight. Their faces were radiant. Before we could say anything, one of them burst out, Bishop! Thank you for coming. I wanted to tell you. The day I was arrested in my prison cell, I asked the Lord Jesus to come into my heart. He came, forgave me all my sins. Heaven is open and there is nothing between me and my God. Please tell my wife and children I'm going to be with Jesus. Please 
please tell them to accept Jesus into their lives as well. The other two men had very similar stories and they were excited even though they were tied in handcuffs. The three faced the firing squad standing close together. They looked toward the people and began to wave with their handcuffs and all of that. The people waved back. Then shots were fired and the three went to be with Jesus. Stood in front of them. Instead of tears, our hearts were throbbing with joy, mingled with tears. It was a day never to be forgotten. Though dead, these men spoke loudly to all of the Kigezi district. And the next Sunday, I was preaching to a huge crowd in the hometown of um, one of the executed men. Again, the, the, the feel of death was was over the congregation. It was very sombre. But when I gave them the testimony of their man and how he died, there erupted a huge song of praise. Huge song of praise. Many turned to the Lord there. You see, this is how the gospel works, my brothers and sisters. This is how it works. The good news was not just for the shepherds. It just wasn't there for the residents of Bethlehem. It wasn't just for the, the Jewish nation alone. What does our verse say? I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, all the world. That's you and me, folks. In a world that desperately needs good news. First of all, don't be afraid of the good news, despite the fact that you need to be confronted with your sin. And don't be afraid to share the good news, despite the fact that it might be politically incorrect in the times in which we live. The good news is still the good news. Don't be afraid of how much it might cost you because too many brothers and sisters have paid a tremendous price but never, never enough to, to uh, give back to how much our Lord paid for us for our redemption. Praise be to God. Praise be to Jesus for his goodness. Amen.